Bill. Edgar. Pizza. I'm already engaged. Okay, hear me out. Jalapenos. Olives. Pineapple. Thoughts. Not a huge olives guy. Um, they're they're okay as kind of a thing to snack on. Um, you know, like if you're having a barbecue and the the main stuff isn't ready yet, if there was like a bowl of things, an antipasti, antipasti, that's the word. That's mm. the word. Um, for an Italian barbecue, yeah, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't tend to have them on on pizza, and I think I prefer the green to the black olives, and it's usually black olives on pizza, right? Mm, it is. Yeah. Um, that is remarkably close to one of my favoured um, pizza topping combinations. Really? What is your mm-hmm. favourite pizza topping combination, Bill? Uh, substitute the olives with pepperoni. Well, I can't do that because, like, Cause you animals, eat meat. Yeah. animals would have died for that, Bill, and you should feel yeah. awful. Uh, I often do. <laughs> um, I mean, if if... That uh, pizza chain started offering meatless pepperoni. I would, I would happily go for it. Um, so pepperoni, jalapenos, and pineapple. Jalapenos. Oh, this little tilled so, over the end. Come on, Edgar. That's right, jalapenos. Jalapenos. Uh, thanks for correcting my pronunciation, there, pal. Um, the that's that's intriguing. I think it. I think both of these pizza topping combinations the the, the jalapenos uh, olives pineapples and then the jalapenos pepperoni um and pineapples i think they're cut from the same cloth in that mm. maybe this is what i'm doing with that combination i wonder are you doing the same thing where you get spiciness from the jalapenos you get saltiness from the olives or the pepperoni and you get sweetness from the pineapple so you're hitting yeah. all the major taste sensations I think I think that is it. I think that is it. This is sort of a there's a, a triad there that is being is being satisfied. Yeah. So yeah, that's I, I wasn't expecting uh you to be as okay with that because so I got this pizza combination from uh I don't know if you know the H H three podcast. I am aware of the name. Yeah, so they were they, uh, a thing that they do on the podcast very often is they order food and eat on the podcast, which I find a little bit gross. Yeah, I find a little bit gross, uh, and I tend to tune out for those sections. Um, But one of the one of the things that they ordered one time was a pizza, and the the host eaten was like, "You got his right." It's was eaten. He was eaten. Uh, Jalapenos, olives, and pineapple. It's amazing, and no one believes me. And then I was like, "Okay, I'll give it a blast," and I am in love. I think that is a whopping combination. But so far, everyone I've talked to have uh most people are okay with the with the jalapenos most people are fine with that but the minute you mention either black olives or pineapples people check out because they seem to be two very very contentious pizza toppings yeah they're it's it's very divisive um and i don't understand i don't understand the pineapple thing like it's weird it's like it's a bit of sweetness on the pizza it's cool like i get it's a fruit but fruit is allowed to go on a savory meal that's all right uh, yeah like Sweet and sour. Sweet and sour has pineapple in it. Yeah. Um. So cranberry sauce and turkey. Well, cranberry sauces. I'm not not a fan of cranberry sauce. But it is an example of of fruit or applesauce and pork. Applesauce and pork. Yeah. Or is there another example? Wensleydale 
with fruit in it, as you know, the cheese you can get yes. it with like cranberries or with apricots or whatever. Yeah, that's not, nice. that, it's it's much better with the apricots than it is with the cranberries. Cranberries are just I just I find them so sour. They're so tart, and mm. then you know when they like quote unquote taste good to me, um, it just means that they're like the what you're eating is ninety percent sugar with a little <laughs> bit of cranberry, and it's just kind of like I feel. I, f- I just feel bad for the imminent diabetes and I don't enjoy the experience of eating this like cranberry syrup. Um, but yeah, most people not on board with that pizza and I've been trying to evangelize that pizza to everyone around. Most people don't like it. So I thought I'd bring it up to you and see what you thought. And also listeners, let me know uh, if you have the opportunity to try this pizza topping out. Uh, even if you're skeptical about some of the ingredients, try it out in combination. I think in combination, it's great. Um, okay. So yeah, try it out and let us know in the comments because I think our food talk. Um, did we have a food talk last time? No, we did. What did we do last time, Bill? We talked about oh no, the secret weird things people do, and that was mm-hmm. revolved around food. I think a lot of people like that, like city food talk. So I was like, hey, let's do another city food talk. So there you go, city food talk number two: pizza toppings. The one true pizza: jalapenos, jalapenos, uh, black olives, and pineapple. And I, I'm not hearing otherwise. So first item of follow up: I need to apologize. About time. I was I was wrong, and I want to apologize to my friends and family because I've made a severe and continuous lapse in judgment. Wait, no, this <laughs> no. I wait, hang on. This is an internet apology. I have to start with. Anyway, so on a serious note, I just wanna... to warn you, my audio definitely clipped there. <laughs> That's fine. Well, you could. I'm about to apologize for the audio issue, so you could apologize next week for the audio, next month for the audio issue. Um, yeah. So on a serious note, I need to apologize for the audio quality on my end in the last recording. I completely screwed up. I forgot to plug in, or like I rather, I plugged in my mic but forgot to select it in my recording software. So I was using the built-in microphone on the computer, which isn't very good. Um, but, you know, so I made the call uh, that I'd rather, I'd rather get the episode, excuse me, I'd rather get the episode out um, as opposed to re-recording and delaying everything and moving the video schedule on, etc. I was like, we'll, we'll put it out. Um, and unless there's a massive uh, uproar about it, will that will be will be okay? But I do want to apologize for it. It was completely my fault, and I just it was just a massive lapse in judgment. I have triple checked that today I am in fact using this microphone. Um, so yeah, apologies for that, folks. Bill will apologize for his obnoxious laugh next month. <laughs> I absolutely will not. Your laugh was the best part. It's just again, it goes from it just goes from zero to a hundred in like a millisecond. It's absolutely hilarious. <laughs> I just I have, a, I have a lot of joy to share. <laughs> you do have a lot of joy to share. Okay, so uh, the next the next item of follow up is um, well, actually, Bill, how about you do the next item follow up? You you've written in the show notes Irish accent crime corner. I've been talking for ages, so let's do a bit of Bill talking. So. Last episode, you talked about... It was Wild Mountain Time, wasn't it? No, it was um, Frontier. No, it wasn't. Wasn't it? Was it? Frontier. It was Frontier. It was yeah. Frontier, yes. Feckin' me, um, And the, the terrible Irish accents there. Um, and actually, a discussion in the, the thread, in the Reddit thread from uh, the previous episode, 
reminded me of this, uh, and it shares a certain number of similarities with Frontier. Hmm. The game Assassin's Creed Rogue. Okay, I've not played. Have you played any of the Assassin's Creed games? I played that one where you were in Venice, or not Venice, you're in Italy. Um, yeah. Way yeah, back in the Two, yeah. Sure. Um, so Assassin's Creed Rogue is set a little bit earlier, but broadly the same kind of time period as Frontier. Um, mm-hmm. It's set in the, well, no, maybe a little bit earlier, the, the late 1700s. Um, kind of mid to late 1700s before the American Revolution and you play uh, an American of Irish descent but like with supposedly with an Irish accent and he's always referred to as Irish by the name of Shea Patrick Cormac because we are well known in Ireland for having three first names and no surname <laughs> um, just just they had a dartboard of like typical Irish names and just threw three darts and took that and didn't didn't change anything or didn't look into it any further, um, and it has the worst Irish accent I've I've seen in a video game in a long time. It came out a good few years ago, but I only played it uh, kind of end of last year, started this year, um, and it's it's set in um, New England and bits of. Uh, British North America, later Canada, and the North Atlantic and stuff. So, there, you know, there, there, there's analogs to the, the setting of Frontier. Um, but the, the accent is truly, truly awful. Okay, hold on. I'm going to listen to it here. Give me a second. Why is the ram always gone? Oh. Am I boring you? Marky! Get me another rum. Sorry to drop in unannounced. He's off the wind! Haul it all sail! He's seen us! Give chase! I can see my house from here. Wow. That makes Michael's accent from Frontier sound like he's a native. It's bad, isn't it? Whoa. Yeah, it's bad. Do you know what? I have a problem with this. Uh, Sorry, I'm about to get a little bit serious here, Bill, if that's okay. Go for it. Some of it sounds like he's affecting a sort of a drunk vibe. Um, And and like, like I guess, right, that, that drinking and drinking culture is kind of a big thing in Ireland. But like I just it just it frustrates me so much when we're all painted under that umbrella. And like, you know, this is nothing new. Like, you know, Edgar has this fresh take that like, you know, not everyone not every Irish person is the same, obviously, right? But it's just it's so annoying. And like it, it happens not regularly, but like it happens intermittently throughout my life where I'm reminded that we are viewed as the drunks. And it's just really frustrating. Like I remember one time I was in Paris. Um, and we're going up to Montmartre, or however you correctly pronounce that in French. And one of the 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 like the street artists came up looking to try and get us to sit down for the art thing. And uh, you know where they usually try and engage you in conversation to try and like lock you in. And mm-hmm. he was like, "Oh, where are you from? Where are you from?" And like, "Or oh, from Ireland?" And he's like, "Ireland, hey!" And like makes the drinking like you know bottoms up sort of symbol i'm just kind of like you know there like we have there we've a history of great literary um powerhouses we i think the dude who invented the submarine was irish or maybe a submarine missile something like that he was irish um like you know ireland is more than just we drink ourselves stupid all the time and it's just it's so frustrating so it's really frustrating to hear this video game voice i don't know if this is intentional but just affect the sort of like slightly daft drunk irish man and you're like oh come on 
lads. That's my rant. Yeah. No, that's that's totally fair. <laughs> it's very frustrating. It's really annoying. Uh, yeah, it's just... It's, it's, it's... Yeah. Anyhow, but this is an awful accent. Yeah. And like there there's some other bad voice acting in it as well. There's one of the one of the uh supporting characters is um I don't know if you've ever seen Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. No. Uh, okay, well, for anyone who has the the Lucian Sanchez character, one of the characters in this sounds like he's he's doing the Lucian Sanchez thing but totally seriously. It's like totally bombastic over enunciated drama it's it's really bizarre um but yeah i think i think this is a worthy entry in in uh irish accent crimes corner yeah i i nearly think that it would be a more fun albeit much less frequent corner if it was kind of like irish accent what's the opposite of crimes like uh, the irish accents award corner because <laughs> like that is a rare and beautiful unicorn when someone who's not irish actually affects a semi-decent irish accent it just it just doesn't happen like it just does not happen. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's just ah, oh, it's so bad. Um, you know, I was thinking about it though, like, and I think as much as I I hate it, and I think it just sounds daft to an actual Irish person. There, there kind of is very little that they could do about that because you mentioned this in the previous show, where it's like this accent that they all affect. It's always of the same flavor, and it's like based on a hyper real notion of what an Irish accent is. Mm. Um, I think if they were to actually take a real Irish accent, no one outside of Ireland or maybe outside of, say, you know, Western Europe um, would clock it as an Irish accent. Do you know, like if you if you take a sorry, folks, for people who don't know anything about Ireland, but if you take a Cavan accent, for example. Hello, how's it doing today? I just want to. I suppose talk, but I know people find it hard for me to understand me, and maybe they don't want to understand. Some people maybe don't want to understand me. Maybe it's for the best they don't. <laughs> some people don't understand me, but uh, I just want to give a good shout out because somebody shouted me out today. I was watching this live stream. Obviously, great YouTuber, great person. Tell what the we paid a favor by shouting him out. And you present that as being an Irish accent. It is an Irish accent, but no one outside of Ireland would go, that's authentic. They'd say that's daft. And the same thing for like... I don't know. Do you think... I think they wouldn't notice the 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 differences in it. They would just hear it as generically Irish and not... not... Oh, no. I, I think they'd hear it as being radically different from the hyper-real Irish accent they're used to. And ergo, it, it is wrong. Hmm. Do you know? And I think the same applies for like around where I live, um, in the southern part of the county... Um, and actually towards the Cavan end of things, um, the accent gets real funky. Uh, and again, that's an authentic Irish accent. Uh, but like, you know, if you were to show it to anyone else of Ireland, they'd be like, nah. Same thing for some accents. Like Cork, I don't know. I'm not sure if a lot, if a lot of people around the world are aware of the Cork accent. And that can sound kind of jarring to them. Um, mm. And even some like Dublin accents, you know, you present like a D4 accent as the standard Irish accent in a work and people be like, no, nah, that's not Irish. What are you talking about? Um, I, I think it's a real catch 22. You, you, if you making a film, uh, non-Irish people making a film are kind of almost forced to keep up this pretense of the hyper real Irish accent because that's the road we started down and we can't really deviate. <laughs> Which is very sad. <laughs> it is. But anyway, so Irish Accent Crimes Corner installment number uh, Iver a Doe, number two. Iver a Doe. Iver a Doe. Um, 
so what's what else we have in the show notes? Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, we we talked about secret weird things people do mm-hmm. last time. I kind of expected this would happen, but like all the conversation was about secret weird things people do. Uh, I'm sorry, Bill. I don't think many people were talking about your work uh, or the fast, the great Fast and Furious thesis. It was all just secret weird things people do. So I've I've assembled a couple of them that I'm going to uh, go through real quick. Um, that I thought were were interesting and perhaps worthy of debate at the end. But we'll go through the list. Um, we have one here from uh, from Reasonableism, um, who uh, that I've um, titled as Two Step Drinking. They say their secret weird thing is where they, with a meal, they take a small drink of water or some fluid uh, to lubricate the food hole, and then they eat the entire meal and thereafter finish the th- drink, which is a little bit strange because I. Most people would assume that the uh, the common practice would be to drink whilst eating. Take mm. a bite, drink, take a bite, drink. But this person does a two-step drinking process. A minor a minor ingression of liquid at the start and a major ingression of liquid at the end of the eating process. Um, that's one. Dustin uh, Duchette uh, sent us an email uh, saying that this reminded them of the thing called the serial killer trait. Um, that they, I think their workmate, uh, yeah, workmate referred to as a serial killer trait, where it's... Oh, yeah, I've, I've heard that phrase, yeah. I, I have not. Uh, so just for other people like like me, um, it's basically a secret weird thing you do, where if it turns out that you're actually a serial killer, people would look at that secret weird thing and be like, that makes sense. Should have connected the dots there. Uh, and uh, Dustin Duchette, in a brilliant stroke of comedy, uh, likens it very much to uh, Bill's not looking back when he trips over things. <laughs> uh, which, you know, I could be thinking about it. I was like, kind of like, yeah, if I found out Bill was a mass murderer, I would, I would kind of uh, peg those two things together and be like, that was a bit odd, Bill. He was, a, he was an odd man. And yeah, this all makes sense now. I like to think if I was a serial killer, uh, well, I would first of all like to think that I wouldn't be. But more importantly, uh, or more relevantly to this rather, um, I would like to think that if I was a serial killer, I would be smart enough not to like expose myself in such a way. Uh, I'm going to take issue with your, your, uh, you're not a serial killer. I think we're all serial killers here, Bill. Right, because we release a podcast every month in a row, and it kills always. <laughs> hey, dad <laughs> uh, jokes. Oh boy, I'm getting old. Um, Dustin Duchette also uh, says that his secret weird thing he does. Oh, oh, sorry. And their coworker, Dustin Duchette's coworker, uh, their secret weird thing uh, or their serial killer trait is that they like the smell of a walk-in freezer, uh, which is super serial killer vibes but also i totally get it um i really like that smell too i also really like the smell of gas stations i like Mm. there's nothing better than getting out of your car when you're refueling and just taking in all the cancer fumes it's wonderful i absolutely adore it um they they also say dustin also says that um they have to wash every glass when they take a drink they have to wash their glass out at least twice and that's and that's even if they just put water in it or it's a fresh glass doesn't matter all glasses have to get washed twice and then we move on um so that was dust dust yeah that that, that kind of makes sense to me it's just as a kind of a reflexive thing just swill it around pour it out do it again then ready to drink yeah that one that one's that one's pretty legit yeah that's fair um you slash omni 314 um omnipi because maybe it's 3.14 um 
they have their secret weird thing is that when they're walking with someone, that person has to always be on the right of them. Um, which is another thing I just realized I do. Uh, whenever myself and the captain go for a walk and if we're holding hands, I have to be on the right. Otherwise, the hand holding doesn't work correctly. Mm. Um, like, we don't fit together well. And it's really weird because we notice it. If, if it happens to be flipped, we, like, join hands and begin to walk. And then we both look at each other and go, like, something's wrong here. And then we switch and we're like, ah, everything's good in the world again. So uh, it's another weird thing that I do as well, along with Omni there. Um, permanent, you slash permanent copy cap has their secret weird thing is that they over tie their shoelaces. Uh, I think they mentioned that they, they do like six or seven knots uh, when tying their shoelaces, which it's not so much weird as kind of good insurance. It feels a little excessive to me. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. They're just they're just overly insured. Do you know they've 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 it, most people when they, when they get insurance on their car, for example, they'll buy the basic package because they just don't want to spend so much money. But some people will be very very concerned about it and want to be covered in all instances and in all circumstances, and they'll buy the premium package with all the extra stuff on it. Um, what happens if a hurricane came along, Bill? And third it, party fire and theft. Third party fire and theft. Oh God, I'm not going to do it now because we'll be here all day. But I, I, at some point, I need to complain to you about insurance companies, man. They're just, I hate them so much. They're, they're just the worst people, and they just, they've, they've made my life a little bit hellish for a pa- for the past two weeks. Um, they're, they're real, yeah, no good. Um, but anyway, but like, if a hurricane came along, Bill. You slash permanent copycat would be sitting here with perfectly tied shoes and your shoes would be off in like the next county. Who'd be laughing then, Bill? Hmm. Hmm. That is a good point. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of a reasonable a reasonable way around that, but I, I don't know if I do. So the uh, then we got one from, I, I, I can't even begin to pronounce this, uh, An, Anustart? Anus you slash Anus... Uh, and, it, and use the art. Oh, and use the art. It's it's not one word, Bill. Hmm. And um, use the art. If if that is a a stealth arrested development reference, then excellent username. Thank you for that. And use the art. Uh, writes that their weird thing is that they uh before they put shoes on, they tap their toes on the ground to like crack them and then stretch them, and then they put the shoes on. Uh. Which I think ranks up there as definitely a secret weird thing. I, I don't really have any justification for why one might do that. Uh, but that's that's definitely up there. And then finally we have uh, you slash Olive you bean, which makes them bean related listener number three. You slash Olive you bean. They do a weird thing where they um they pull up their eyelids uh, and so like uh, like like yeah pull taut their eyelids and let go and then they smack against their eye eyelids making a clicking noise they just do that routinely um which again i think yeah that, that's definitely a secret weird thing like if you're sitting at a dinner table with a bunch of strangers and you just randomly start smacking your eyelids into your eyeballs uh people would be kind of like that person might be a serial killer could well be i don't think that one would give me serial killer vibes do you not think so no no I don't okay. think so. It's definitely a secret weird thing, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for sure, for sure. There, there may be some kind of... We'll have to make some kind of taxonomic decision here or, or <laughs> distinction that there there is 
serial killer vibes are a subset or serial killer traits are a subset yes of secret weird things are that they are separate categories that significantly overlap somehow we need a Venn, Venn diagram bill we yeah need, we, 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 there's no way we could understand this without a Venn diagram I mean I guess murdering a load of people would be a serial killer trait but it probably wouldn't be a secret weird people thing well no 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 it is, it is secret and weird but I feel like it's a and not in the spirit of the other no. secret weird things. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, yeah, so that was some of the secret weird things that people do. I don't know if that was all of them, uh, but I thought that was some of the selections that stuck out to me. Uh, I'm really glad that people really enjoyed that bit. Um, yeah, and I'm sorry, again, I'm sorry, Bill, that I completely stole the thunder of, like, the Fast and Furious theory thesis and your world. I actually, I want to respond to one of those. Yes, yes, do, um, do, 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 do. To Omnithu on Ford. So they and yourself prefer to walk on the right if yes. they're walking with, with people. Um, if I am a passenger in, in a car, so if I'm sit- sitting in the back of the car or if I'm on a bus, I strongly prefer to be on the right, oh no, on the left hand side. Is that because you want to get away from the sight of oncoming traffic? No. No, it's nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. I think it it came from when I was a teenager and I used to go to Dublin on the bus, right? I would go up in the morning and I would be traveling north. <gasps> yeah. So the sun was to my right. And if I sat on the right-hand side of the, of the bus, then I would get the sun in my face the whole way up. And then I'd have it on my face the whole way down if I sat on the right going south because it would be on the west it'd be setting in the west mm. um and it was just like slightly more comfortable to sit then on the left hand side um yeah that makes sense i i used to do a similar thing as a kid i used to um be brought up to dublin or nearly up to dublin to league slip um for piano lessons uh when i was very very young and the unfortunate thing about that you went was, to leak slip for piano lessons I, yeah because it, originally it wasn't that wasn't the case but then the piano teacher moved and we really liked her and yeah so you know dad was like let's make an adventure out of it we'll, we'll take a saturday every i know and it was every two weeks not every week oh, okay um so yeah it was a bit Still of a, though. It, yeah it was a bit it was a bit excessive now that i think about it but like you got to remember like this is what like more than 20 years ago in rural Ireland not a hell of a lot of like classically trained pianists knocking around you know yeah um, you know we didn't exactly have a lot of a lot of options but anyhow we would go up to League Slip and so for people who don't know what Bill was saying there about travelling north to Dublin <laughs> that was 150 kilometres <laughs> it was a trek yeah yeah but, like, but again <laughs> we, we'd make a day out of it so like oh I used to love it because we, we'd go um we go early in the morning I'd have like a oh and the piano lesson was like two two and a half hours long so it was like you got a lot wow. of in. um possibly too much for a kid of my age but there you go um but yeah so as you go up you have like two two and a half hour piano lesson and then we'd go to like golden records and i'd buy a load of like cds and stuff and then we'd have like a meal and it'd be like a big fancy thing and um we'd drive back in the evening it was great i really enjoyed it but anyway the, the point of the story is not to just reminisce is to say that um that was for listeners bill was saying there about going up to dublin um Bill's trajectory is predominantly a north-south trajectory, or I guess like a north-east-south-east trajectory, whereas my trajectory to Dublin was a straight 
west to east trajectory. So that meant in the morning time, the bloody blaring, low-hanging winter sun was in your eyes the entire time going to lessons. And then going home, the low-hanging, or like the, the, the setting sun was in your eyes going back. And it was really annoying. And there was no, oh, we switched sides to get away from the sun. Nope. You were just blinded the entire time. So 300 kilometers in total of staring into the sun. Great crack. That's my little story. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I'm sorry you didn't have a, a, a life hack like I did. Yeah, no option there. I mean, one could say you could put down a sun visor, but like, you know, who's that smart, Bill? I just like go to sleep because you weren't driving. <laughs> That's fair. Poor dad. Like, geez, but he, he really liked driving. So I suppose it didn't bother him. Um, But anyhow, so uh, that was that was follow up, I believe. Yeah, I think that is all the follow up. Cool. So yeah, uh, give us the the summary and then launch into it. Um, this in no break whatsoever from my usual custom is a letter, uh, <laughs> um, and it is from Ekern. It is between two people in Ekern, uh, one of whom we have actually encountered before, but um, I will explain that afterwards, perhaps. Cool. Alega, I received your last letter with great joy and read it with great concern. Your recuperation is not yet complete, it seems. The old manias and obsessions yet torment you. My heart is full of concern. The physician and I both urge you to take another sabbatical and, as ever, my estate is at your disposal. Please show them this letter and every care will be given to you. Mention my name at the depot of Edmure and you shall be afforded a craft to take you there, and I shall cover the expense. I heard you were once again denied an audience with the Valdain office, and I know the Tamari have told their staff to prevent your entry to their chambers. This route will bear no fruit, Alega, not in your own health, and not in the pursuit of our goals. The companies will only hear of other planets when they can buy and sell them. I say this not just as your colleague, your fellow student, but as your friend. But I know your nature, and I understand that these pleas will move you as little as our study of the cosmos moves a company shareholder. So I have a project for you. Allow me to explain. Early last year, shortly after year's rise, I was on business in Vilv. Commercial business, I should say. That was the sole purpose of this visit. Though while I was there, I chanced to meet a scholar of old acquaintance. He introduced me to some of the learned society of that city, and I was afforded the opportunity to purchase the most peculiar item, a thick glass vial sealed with wax, containing within several small dark objects, a brownish black the size of large seeds or small nuts, and seeds indeed they were, as their purveyor informed me, or so he believed. He claimed he had purchased them from a Bini and that they were the seeds of a plant native not to Ikern, but to the cradle. Desiring to study them in a location removed from interference and observation, I cleared out a greenhouse at my estate, and there experimented with the seeds. Several died without sprouting, until I came upon the correct formulae for their propagation. 
Heavy heat, limited quantities of water, and soil fertilized by ash and fresh bone meal. The resulting plant is curiously squat and discolored, even ugly at first, but possessed of a strange wonder and charm upon closer inspection. I suppose it would indeed be curious were a plant from another world to conform to our ideas of beauty. The first generation of plants grown from seeds collected in my own greenhouse shall shortly reach maturity, but I have been unable to return to my estate and am unlikely to do so in the near future. There is none I would trust more than you to oversee the care of these precious plants and to make study of their properties. The first harvest was too valuable for me to investigate the flesh, the fruits and other qualities of the alien. The notes I have taken thus far are stored in the desk in the greenhouse and will give you further detailed instructions on their care and cultivation. The Binni who sold them related that they have anaerogenic properties, though I do not know how this may be achieved. I understand your aversion to such substances, of course. My staff may be available to help you in this manner, once you are certain it is not acutely poisonous. Please, consider this offer. It would do you a world of, or perhaps many worlds, good to your health and to our studies. Your friend, your maiden. Cool. Okay, so th- there's a couple of things here. Um, I I have a vague memory of this um, this person being handed that glass vial with stuff in them. Um, I have no memory at all about the this 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 Allegra, um, uh, who apparently is unwell or something old manias and obsessions i don't remember that at all it feels like that's information i should remember so would you give us an overall summary um it is exactly the other way around (laughs) oh okay well then then the summary is definitely needed um so uh uh, yeah i don't i'm pretty sure i i never had the thing about the the glass vial um until yesterday uh Uh, maybe I don't know. I don't. I don't, I don't remember it. Um, Alega was the uh, author of something I wrote coming on two years ago, um, called a fevered journey, wherein she um had a sort of a nightmare or a hallucination of some of the other planets in the system. Oh, I remember. Where her consciousness travelled across the across the system and visited. Uh, Vasath and visited the cradle. Mm, I remember that now. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And on the cradle, um, she felt that she was seen by a a figure there, and that woke her from her dream. Okay, and so this uh, what's what's his face? Uh, Remaiden. Remaiden. Um, he he's completely new. So do I take it that um that Allegra after having this um this DMT esque vision. Um, she has sought out uh, people to confirm um, the existence of, of life on other planets. And this is where she comes into contact with this bloke. Um, so th- uh, they were, they are, uh, they're known to each other for a long time. They're, they're both kind of students of the, of the esoteric, uh, what they're 
uh, obliquely referring to here as scholars. Sure. Um, uh, it's not like conventional um, that they were in university together, but they're they're like occultists, something more more like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it is broadly understood, Annie Cairn, that uh, there is humanity on uh, Vasath and on Cradle, um, but it's it's kind of. It's 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 not really confirmed in any way. It's 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 kind of just believed um, from from old tales and stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. The way like Europeans a thousand years ago knew that there were you know other other places in the world that they hadn't visited, but they didn't really know that much about them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, something kind of akin to that, um, and their scholarly interest, Elega and her maiden is to find out more and to contact the the other planets in in a more um in in depth way to actually get confirmation of this um it is also widely believed that the bidni do travel between planets um there's no real basis for believing that but it's just kind of assumed by people by a lot of people that they do Oh, that's interesting so that does that imply that this cuz the uh, remaiden was given this thick glass vial by a bidni uh, well, it, it came second hand. The guy he he got it from got it from a bin knee. Sure, but we could uh, we could if we um, evoke the unreliable narrator. It, yeah, it could well be that the bin knee don't do any interplanetary travel, and this is just they just flogged some seeds to someone uh, on the pretense that they came from a different world, but actually they just came from a garden down the road. Uh, yes, that that would be definitely something that is. Um like uh, naysayers and, and skeptics who, who scholars who disagree with, with uh, the, the opinions of Elega and her maiden would say, uh, we do know that the Bini do have presence on, on, on multiple planets though. You and I. Oh yeah. You, yeah. You confirmed that. Yeah. 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 So yeah. After, after her, her experience um, uh, that I recounted in the, the fevered journey, uh, Alega had uh, kind of a, a bit of a breakdown and was trying to get the the companies, the Tamari company and the Valdin company, um, to uh, engage in this idea that there were that there were other planets and that there were people on the other planets, and they're not interested. It's 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 not really relevant to 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 what they do. That's one of the lines I highlighted. Uh, you say here, I understand that these pleas will move you as little as our study of the planet moves a company shareholder. That mm-hmm. that kind of rang true because it's one of the things that like um I think is kind of really sad about uh, the modern world in that like we could well be an inter, not maybe not interplanetary, but like what inter sol body species. Like we could be living on the moon. We could have infrastructure on the moon. Um, and one of the reasons we don't is because it's not like there's no economic um, incentive to do so yet. Like, um, mm. and like we won't go, you know, we'll go to ast- the asteroid belt and begin putting infrastructure there as long as it once it becomes economically viable for someone to extract all of those resources. But like, you know, we humans don't operate on the sort of wouldn't it just be you know great for expanding horizons? It's always about you know the dollar. Um, and that's really frustrating, you know, it's really, fr- and I, I've, I've said this before, definitely off air, but maybe even on air that like, I think I, we are born at like the exact wrong time because like 
we are literally just a little bit too soon for being an interplanetary species. And I don't think we will be interplanetary in our lifetimes. But I could see it happening the next maybe, you know, two, three hundred years. So I'm just kind of like, why couldn't I just have been born like two, three hundred years later? I want to go to Mars, but there's no bloody economic incentive to go to Mars at the moment. Ah, oh, terrible. Um, yeah, kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm and, and broadly as well, like I think, you know, there's so much, um, so much science, I think is, obviously, look, I'm not a scientist here. I'm just some bloke on the internet, but to my mind, so much science is stifled because there is no economic purpose to it, Mm. Um, which is so anti-human because our whole thing about being human is our ability to think and reason and to understand. Mm. And, you know, since, you know, since um, economics have arisen, um, that has subsided, given way to uh, economic pressures. And that's, I think that's really sad. And the 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 other side of that is because um, scientific endeavor must justify itself. Um, to you know, it must it must show results of some kind in order to get funding and whatever that leads to bad science because people yeah. want to like make things look different than than they are or better than they are so that they can justify getting further funding. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's so, that. It's just that also sucks. That also sucks, and I think it's again. I think it's really anti-human, um, mm-hmm. because it's part of our nature to be inquisitive, and we have to cull that uh, inquisitiveness within us for the sake of economic pressures. Um, so anyway, to tie that back in, I yeah, the, the, I I feel Allegra's pain when she's kind of like, guys, come on, there's so much more out there. Come on, and they're just all like, yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't pay the bills, and you're like, oh no. <laughs> But I suppose in the context of this story, though, it's a good thing, though, that the companies aren't interested because otherwise the companies will just go and colonize the bejesus out of the other planets. Or, you know, try. Or try, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's fair. But, you know, they, they, they don't have they don't have the, the capacity to do that, at least. So they, they don't, they can't get there, so. Yeah, no, well, yes, I mean, but again, like, if there's a strong enough economic incentive, uh, they will gain the capacity, surely. Hmm. Like there, there are going to be limits on their like technological ability to do so, though. Yeah, but I mean, it in this context, surely they just need to get cozy with the Bini. Easier said than done. Mm, I'm really interested in the Bini. I always have been. We need to know. We need to learn more about the Bini. Um. Anyhow, sorry, your summary. You were going. You were. You were summarizing. Uh. No, I think. I think that was it. Um. So yeah, Ermaiden he bought these bought these seeds from some guy he met in a pub who said that they were alien seeds, um, and he is growing them. He has successfully grown one kind of uh, crop of them, uh, and then replanted the seeds from from that crop, and uh, hasn't been able to go back to continue his studies on it, and is asking Alega to do so so she can take a break from making a public spectacle of herself. <laughs> <laughs> um, ranting about fairy tales in, in, in front of uh, capitalist colonizers. Uh, poor Allegra. Poor, poor Allegra. Um, what is an on, uh, onerogenic? What the hell is that? Um, uh, it's, its literal meaning would be um, 
creates dreams or induces dreams. I'm just using it here as kind of a, a analog for hallucinogenic. Oh, so it's a psychedelic. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. Um, is it in any way any? Oh, you're never going to divulge this, but let's just try anyways. Is this in any way uh, linked to perhaps getting to these planets? Um, like does one does one travel in the mind to these planets, and these planets are the medium by which it's done? Oh well, I mean, we we know Alega already has done so, or at least believes she has done so. Right, but what I mean is, like, would the Bene be the one? Is that how the Bene uh, interact with these planets? Oh, and might this um, be why a Bene trader has those seeds on them in the first place? Like, that's the tool they use to uh, traverse space. Um. I hadn't considered that. It may be it may be an element, but they they do they do physically travel. They okay. are physically present. Yeah, the Benir are physically present where they are. It's not just a projection or whatever. Because I got I got a slight um, Star Trek Discovery vibes there with like a mycelium network, um, and like the idea of like I, I realize well, hold on, mycelium is mushroom, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I'm I'm really bad with like the. What what is a plant and what is not and all that sort of jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, but I these feel related. Like your mycelium network in Star Trek, and then you have this like plant that um has these psychedelic properties and perhaps functions similarly. So in my mind, they were linked. Um, um fun biology fact. Fun biology fact. Uh, fungi and animals are more closely related to each other than either of them are to plants. Yeah, that's why I had to stumble there because I was like, mm. wait a minute, I can't say that they both are plants. Because mm. um, in my head, I'm like, oh, fungi go on the ground. They are plants. Yeah. They don't They don't walk around the place. They are plants. But yes, yeah, you're right. I remember hearing that. It was in the back and of the And in like Dungeons and Dragons, mushroom people are considered a plant monster, which is totally taxonomically inaccurate. But anyway. Oh, we need to cancel D&D is what we need to <laughs> <laughs> um, cool so do I take it that you are building up to uh, writing more about the other worlds and the interaction uh, between between them well we've all, we've already gotten a bit about uh, Vasath um, yeah sure and we've like, already gotten origin- like the, the first stuff I wrote in this setting was actually on Cradle um, yeah with the, the harpy like people or was that Fasat? That was Fasat. That was Fasat. That was yeah. uh, The cradle was uh, Nlamo. Um, oh, that's and right. The, yeah, the the polytheistic kingdom and the, the king and the expansive empire to the north. But will we get to see more interaction between these places in the future? Um, possibly. Hmm. Uh, but for the moment, because of the various, like, because the... the the technologies available, uh, the Bini will be the primary um, movers of any kind of interplanetary trade or interplanetary contact. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, that's that's really dope. I, I got to say, it was um, the it was a, an exciting read. Oh, good. Um, yeah, there was lots of intrigue, like a glass vial sealed with wax containing several dark objects, <laughs> and like a plant native not to a cairn. But to the cradle, and it was like, "Whoa, this is exciting!" <laughs> so I really enjoyed it. That was really good. Thank you. 
um look forward to uh to hearing more about have you got any uh further closing remarks um on that because that's most of my points no i think i think we kind of i think we covered pretty much everything cool um excellent so shall we uh do some of uh my creative output stuff absolutely <laughs> my creative output stuff. jesus christ Edgar. oh um so la- i uh since we last recorded i have posted uh, a video about tones called game of tones i've posted the follow-up to that i've also posted a uh, wallerst video um, unless you have something to add about the follow-up video and the Willerst video, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the Game of Tones, if that's okay. Uh, I have some questions and such, but yeah, you talk away and I'll, I'll put in my, my questions at the end. Uh, well, pertaining to Game of, Tro- Game of Tones? Yeah. Yeah, oh no, give me your questions off the start. Uh, so 60 to 70% of languages have lexical tone. Uh, yes, to some degree. That is mad. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? And we it always seems like so many. We always think of of tone as being at least the lay person thinks of tone as being this weird exotic phenomenon that like yeah. only... lay anglophone person exactly yeah. Um, but like that's not the case. Like, uh, like I mentioned in the follow up video, we are the weird ones. Like English mm. is weird for not employing lexical tone in any way, shape, or form. Um, yeah, most languages, the majority of languages are tonal to uh, an extent. But my question then is, what percentage of speakers speak a tonal language? Because there's thousands and thousands and thousands of languages that have dozens or hundreds of speakers. uh, And I would guess a lot of major world languages don't. Like English, major world language, uh, doesn't have lexical tone. Uh, I don't understand what Spanish does. Uh, I don't no. know whether uh, Hindi or Urdu do. Uh, oh, I don't know if Hindi does, but Pun- Punjabi does. Okay. Um, there are there are uh, a good chunk of languages in on the Indian subcontinent that that are tonal. Uh, hold on, let me just get a quick. quick yeah, H- Hindi is not. Hindi is not. So apparently, there are. I googled the population of Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, that is half a billion. No. Yes, half a billion. 676,855,910, apparently. Um, <laughs> what? That's like, the 10 at the end is always just amusing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's actually a, that's a good point. It's like, why not 11? Like, are you sure you counted everyone? Um, it feels like a, a number that is way too certain for what it's counting. Um but yeah, so like that's half a billion people, over half a billion people in Southeast mm-hmm. Asia, and like the vast majority of those will speak uh, languages that have have some degree of tone in them. Because like you know, um, Chinese, um, like Mandarin, Cantonese, Thai, uh, Japanese. Well, are, are are Mandarin and Cantonese spoken widely there? Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, um, I need like, to find this better. I'm um, the Southeast Asia is just yeah. What what would you call the geographic region that is like? Southeast plus China and the Korean Peninsula and Japan. Well, I mean, if we're if we're if we're including Korean Peninsula, Japan, and China, it's going to be way more than half a billion because there's over a billion people just in China. Yeah, but what would you call that region though? That encompasses all of that, just like East Asia. I guess. Yeah. Uh, okay. East so- and Southeast Southeast Asia. I don't know. 
Uh, well, now I'm getting a a uh, 1.5 billion. Um, hold on, what does? Let me just have a quick look. What sort of map would Wikipedia give me? Oh, East Asia is just giving me China, Mongolia, the Korean Peninsula, Japan, Taiwan, that sort of jazz. Yeah. So, so we're talking like we're talking about like maybe two billion people, maybe. If you include Southeast Asia and sure. China, Korea, Japan, uh, all that sort of jazz, like a, a good chunk of those two billion people will be speaking tone language. So that's a, that's a massive yeah. chunk of possibly. Well, but then Yoruba is another language. It's a language in Nigeria uh, yeah. spoken by another. I, I'm going to imagine maybe 20, 30 million people. Um, like it's I wouldn't be surprised if it's a minority of speakers as 50. a whole. 50, 50 million speakers. 50 million native speakers. Well, there you go. Um, yeah. so I Nigeria would, is really big. <laughs> it's very big. And also also Yoruba, it, it doesn't conform to the nation state of Nigeria. It spills yeah. out all over the place. Sure. Um, but like, I wouldn't be surprised if it is a minority of speakers that speak tonal languages, but I, it would be... It would either be a very, very strong minority or uh, maybe a small majority. Mm. Um, either way, tone, super common. Yeah. Super. And then, and then of course, you know, you have uh, Swedish, uh, Norwegian, um, you know, in Europe that, that have a little bit of tone going on. Mm. Um, apparently, Turkish does too. Um, it has, it's like a stress accent. And yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. No, uh, another point? Um. So there are I don't I don't think this came up in, in the video. I might have missed it if it did. Can you have complex co- uh, tonal contours with three specified states? So low rising to high, falling to mid, for example. Yeah, so that's kind of what Mandarin does. Okay. Um because Mandarin like the way it the Mandarin's dipping tone, its third tone is usually shown on a graph, is that you start somewhere in the middle, drop down to the to the lowest register of all the tones, and then go higher, way higher in the middle. So it has an asymmetric curve. Um and I listened to a couple of Chinese speakers um like teaching Chinese on YouTube and they all refer to it like that. They don't just go high, low, high. Um they go more mid, low, high. And can you have a, do, are there any languages that have a distinction between low, say, mid, mid, low, high and high, low, high? Mid, low, high, high, low, high. Uh, no, because, oh, okay, I can't say that for sure. For because that's the same contour, but just with, with one only uses two states, the other uses three. Yeah, I, I would say no. Uh, okay. Or I would say that it's going to be extremely rare because in general, when languages have uh, the same type of contours, they'll split them apart in the, the pitch space so that um, there's a kind of a clear distinction. Yeah. So the example given in one of the books I was reading would that it would be extremely rare to have like a, say, a 3-1 three, a three, falling tone. So like from three, like five, four, three, two, one, high to low. Uh, mm-hmm. 3-1 falling tone and then to have like a 4-1 falling tone because yeah. they're too similar um, what you might, what you often find is you'd have a 3-1 falling tone and then like a 5-3 falling tone so it's split by upper and lower register um, so language will, will try to like um, distinguish those orally um, so I can't say for certain that like drastically similar complex contours exist or not but I mm-hmm. suspect my gut would be that they'd be incredibly unlikely to crop up because of that, yeah. um, because of the, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, ability to be misunderstood because they're so similar. 
Yeah, that, no, that makes sense. That makes mm. sense. Uh, I will say just really quickly on the on the um, on the Mandarin's dipping tone. I uh, I've heard that it, it in in fact, and this is so weird. I don't understand why. And if someone with a linguistics degree could send us an email, I would love this. Apparently, Mandarin's dipping tone, like so, ma, the thing that dips down and goes up. Uh, that's not a dipping tone. Apparently, that is analysed as being a low-level tone, which fries my brain, and I don't understand what's going on, and it makes no sense to me, because quite clearly, you can hear it going, ma, you can hear it doing the thing. Um, but apparently... And you, you you can hear that in native speakers. That's not a thing that, like, is affected by, uh, like, second language learners and is allophonic to... The no, actual no, third tone. No, you can definitely hear it in native speakers. Okay. 100%. Um, okay. But, like, apparently linguists analyze it as just a low tone, um, which, again, I just don't understand how they're doing that or why they're doing that. Um, so, yeah, if someone with a linguistics degree would like to write into me and tell me, explain to me why the hell that's occurring, that would be great because mm-hmm. that baffles me. Um, but, anyway, point number whatever, X, whatever we're on, I forget. <laughs> um... What are heavy syllables, Edgar? So, oh, crap. This is one of those things, Bill, where I'm always conscious about, do I need to explain everything I say? And how much can I rely on it being covered in previous videos? Um, and it, this is one of those times where I was kind of like, I I think I've talked about this before when I was talking about phonotactics way back in the day. And I was like, oh, I think I'm going to save the words and not explain it fully. Uh, and I probably should have. So, heavy syllables are syllables that have a coda or like a long vowel. So uh, a syllable like can, like C-A-N, that's that's a heavy syllable, whereas a syllable like ka is a light syllable. So if it's followed by a consonant, it counts as heavy? It, it, yeah, it, it can vary. It can vary sometimes. I think Wikipedia gets gives an example of something that in English uh, looks like it should be a heavy syllable, but it, in fact it's better analysed as not being. Uh, but basically, it's just like it takes up more room. Right. That's it. It, and, la- it lasts for longer. It takes up more room. So, yeah. Okay. So when you say a long vowel, you actually mean like temporal or phonemic length, not the way that we say in English that E no. is a long vowel. No, no, no. So like, okay. so a, a light syllable would be... I hate that. It's really annoying. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. Um, I, I'll rant about Turkish in a second, actually, about the way they talk about vowels and it drives me nuts. But um, the... Yeah. So a, a light syllable would be like ka and then a heavy syllable would be like ka... Gotcha. Yeah, so gotcha. it's it's phonemic yeah. Um the the thing about Turkish that I don't know if this is all uh, all Turkish speakers think this way, but I was again listening to uh, a Turkish lady on YouTube teach uh, vowel harmony um, on for in in research for the vowel harmony videos, and I can't remember the exact thing she says, but she she explains vowel harmony and why it occurs and how the different vowels are divided up and she used the exact wrong terminology. She said, she said something like, oh, this group of vowels, they're like back vowels. I think she is the word she used. Um, they're like back in the, in the mouth. And this group of vowels, they're like front vowels. And so we, we have words that only have back vowels or only have front vowels. And I remember looking at it and being like, but that's like, that's like linguistically, that's completely inaccurate. Like what she was referring to as back was literally front vowels. And what she was referring to as front was literally backfalls. And it's that thing about, like, the distinction between, uh, the difference between, like, uh, you know, strict, rigorous linguistic terminology and how we 
you know, talk about these things. Yeah. Like what you were saying about the long vowels in English. Like that's, they're not long vowels, but yeah. we use that terminology and it just conflicts sometimes and it's really frustrating. Yeah, that, that kind of thing is, is difficult until like, you know, until you're properly familiar with both things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's the thing where most And then people... even then you have to remember to kind of mentally code switch. Exactly. And it's mo- that's the thing that most people won't be familiar with because like most people won't uh, have any sort of knowledge of the IPA, nor would they mm. need to have any sort of knowledge of the IPA really. Um, but yeah, anyhow, so that's, uh, that's that one. Uh, point number X plus one. <laughs> Um, <laughs> from the follow-up video, um, how could the earliest languages, the earliest human languages, be tonal if tonal genesis, tonal genesis works as you described? Because it requires a, it requires a substrate or requires a, a language to evolve the tones from by replacing other things. So. So that, Bill, that is such a great question. Thank you so much. <laughs> that is that is essentially going to be the topic for part two of tonal videos. Uh, okay. Or tonal videos. Um, the, just the short and sweet of it is that... Um, I, I know you said it wasn't everyone believes that. It's it's just a theory. But it just that seems like a major flaw in that theory. No, no. But here's why it's not a, here's why it's not a major flaw. Um, in that, so there's there's basically two types of, of tonal language, right? Because in, right. in the video I just made, I just focused on here's how to generate tones. But I made no comment about the types of tonal languages and how we deal with them in Conlang. That's part two. Um, in that video, I'm going to talk about the c- complex contratone languages, which basically just when you hear that word, think the languages of Southeast Asia. Um, okay. Like the way they do th- tone is called complex tone languages. And then basically, barring very, very few exceptions, all the other tonal languages around the world do tone in a completely different way. And that's called register tone. They're register tone languages. So there's kind of two different strategies with tone. Uh, in the realms of conlang, at least, and possibly also in general linguistics, uh, complex contratone languages have to be evolved because that's what we see occurring. Like So like old Chinese, for example, um, it didn't have tone, but modern Chinese does, and we can, we can track the evolution thereof. Um, but in register tone languages, we see that tones just go back all the way back they just they just keep going and they're handled in very different ways um, okay so yeah so if you want to go for a southeast asian slash east asian style tonosthetic where you have an isolating isolating language with a bunch of tones you have to evolve it as per the video whereas if you want to do with a quote-unquote normal tonal language because most tonal languages don't do what a, a east asia does um they don't need to be evolved strictly they can just be said to exist in the proto-lang Wait, wait, sorry, sorry, say that again. So you're saying that the, the East Asian ones have it in the proto-lang? No, no, don't, don't. They have don't. to be okay, evolved. Sorry. Yeah, okay. tone needs to be evolved with an East Asian style um, tonal language. Right. And, but uh, Yoruba or whatever, for example, doesn't. It doesn't necessarily, if you're going for that aesthetic. Now, I don't know if proto-Yoruba or whatever was tonal all the way back, but there are examples yeah. of non-East Asian tonal language that just go tone all the way back. Um, and a good example of this, and one that kind of blows people's minds a little bit, is that proto-Indo-European is tonal. Oh. Yeah, so we've tracked back proto-Indo-European all the way to the beginning, and it's it's just tonal, tones were already there, and it was a registered tone language. Um, now this leads me on to a point I want to talk about real quick, if that's okay. 
Yeah, please, please. Because uh, I got a lot. I got. I'm getting quite a bit of heat for this assertion, and I just want to clarify uh, so people understand. Because I can already see people writing comments and being like, "There's no way. <laughs> there's no way. Pie was tonal Edgar. You're that's ridiculous." Um. So, you know the way you have languages like Swedish and Norwegian and Japanese mm-hmm. that are uh, called stress. Um. Oh, not stress. Not stress. Uh, pitch accent languages. Uh. I think so. Um, it, summarize it just so I, I, I am, I'm sure. So TLDR, uh, without getting into it, it's basically, these are basically languages that are tonal, but just do it in a very, very, very minimal way. Um, so they usually have hardly any tones and they only crop up in very, um, uh, very sparse places. Um, it's basically where uh, a pitch accent language is where you have a, a, a tone language that's so depleted of tones that it kind of begins to sort of resemble like a stress language, like like English or Spanish or whatever. Um, okay. And it's it's basically the gray area where these two worlds collide, where you have a non-tonal language and a tonal language. And if you deplete the tones so much that stress begins to become more prominent, you're in the middle there and that's called a pitch accent language. And um, it, it could be like an intermediary stage between a fully tonal and uh, exclusively stress-based Yes, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, um, I- I'm pretty sure, uh, barring some email that I get, that um, if you have tone exodus, like the loss of tones, you mm-hmm. can go through this stage to just lose okay. them completely. Um, but anyway, so people treat, people tend to treat uh, pitch accent languages like Japanese and Swedish and Norwegian, etc., as not being tonal languages, as being mm-hmm. a class apart. Uh, and it's the same shtick with Proto-Indo-European. Proto-Indo-European was a pitch accent language, and people hear p- pitch accent and go, that's not tone. Whereas I've adopted a definition of tone from a linguist called Moira Yip in her book, uh, Tone, in the Cambridge University Press, published by Cambridge University Press, links in the show notes, um, where she basically asserts that um, she takes a position that many other linguists take, that a tonal language is any language where at least some morphemes, um, their lexical meaning is realized by tone, right? Mm-hmm. So that covers everything from Mandarin, where like all of the morphemes are distinguished by tone, all the way down to the likes of Swedish, where only a small subset are distinguished by tone. Basically, if you have any sort of tone going on that distinguishes one word from another or one morpheme from another, it's a tonal language. Um period and so by uh, by that uh distinction by that definition uh pie is a tonal language even though a lot of people would say it's not it's a pitch accent language but pitch accent is subsumed under this broad definition of what tone is for for the definition of tonal language that you're working with which it may not be the one everyone uses but yeah well i i would assert i think moira yip is is up there in yeah in terms of linguists who have studied tone and she cites sure. a, a bunch of I'll leave I'll actually I might actually in the show notes just leave the quote from the book but she's she um she cites a bunch of other linguists who also take this stance as well so I don't I don't think this is a controversial definition no um, no sure yeah uh, yeah I just I just think I think people have heard pitch accent and they just think that yeah. must be different whereas really it's just a big massive sliding scale and it's all tonal Mm-hmm. Um, and that fits with the whole idea of like 60 to 70% of lang- uh, world's languages are tonal. Yeah. Um, you would expect that a lot of languages that maybe you didn't think were tonal are in fact tonal, given that 70% of them are tonal. Yeah. Um, so 
yeah, I just wanted to put that in before someone wrote an email and was like, Proto-Indo-European was not tonal Lager, what are you talking about? Uh, that's the definition of tone I'm working with and other linguists are working with. And ergo, it is tonal. It's just in a very mild way. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Cool. Uh, point number X plus three. Um. Well, I think we've, yeah, I think we've covered all of my tones here, or all, all of my, my points here. Um, cool. I was going to ask about, um, like, reconstructing proto-Sinitic or, or whatever. Um, so they, they have, like, they have done that and, and seen that there is a precursor language or an ancestral language to Mandarin mm-hmm. that isn't tonal. And yes. they, they know where it happened. Yes, I believe, I believe that's Old Chinese. Um, wow. The language we called Old Chinese uh, did not have tones. Cool. Um, and they've done that. that. Is, like, I can kind of get a bit about historical linguistics and reconstructing pronunciations. You know, like the, there's um, what's it called? O O O T or O P productions of Shakespeare or whatever. Yes. But like doing it for, for finding out whether tone is there is great. I, I don't know how you would do that. It's very interesting to me. Well, I mean, look, look. If I have, uh, if there's a protolang, right? We have a word in a protolang, uh, pat, right? Um, and then we find two daughter langs that are related. And then one has pat with no tone. And one has pa, uh, where the T is lost, but there's a high tone. Um, that is one data point to suggest that maybe the loss of that T at the end brought about, about that high tone. And then if you do that exhaustively, you'll begin to follow correlations. And you can go, oh yeah, it was the loss of coda consonants that created that tone. Well, when you put it like that, it seems obvious, Edgar. <laughs> but, but, the thing, but the thing that makes it so difficult, uh, again, not a field linguist here, right? So I don't actually know, but I've read that um, tonogenesis is like amazingly flaky. And there's loads of places where you'd have like two related languages and you'd go, oh, I see what's happening here. This is how tone is being generated. So we'd expect that these words would have, say, high tones because everyone else in his family is doing this. And for reasons completely unexplained and no one knows, this one language would just do the opposite. <laughs> and like, no one knows. And like, everyone just throws that. their hands up and goes, I don't know, tone's weird. Fair enough. So it makes it makes life extremely difficult. But um, but yeah, it, it's, it's certainly more tricky than like, yeah, just reconstructing accents or, you know, that sort of crack. But like, yeah, it, it's doable. Like we clearly have done it. I mean, the 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 way you explained it there, the data actually seems more solid to to me that you can just say compare two things and like two different evolutions of it, rather than trying to figure out which words were meant to rhyme with each other. Um, yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if IRL, it's a lot harder than that. Like you can't yeah. just go, you know, pat goes to pat and pa problem solved like that's just yeah it's more, more complicated but another yes, hard it's... day at the linguistics factory done <laughs> <laughs> i i say it still blows my mind that we were able to do that like that was one of those I, I think a lot of people when they enter into the conlang space they their their first reaction their first like instance of mind blow is when they go oh my god languages can actually be written that's dope this is incredible i never really had that because i kind of always just made sense to me um because i was like I mean, yeah, of course, you could just decide to write a language. You know, I can make up a bunch of words and. Make oh, a sorry. By by written, you mean like created? Created, yeah. You could yeah. write your own language, yeah. Um, but the thing that the, the first instance of like complete mind blow for me was when I found out that we can reconstruct languages, and I was mm. like, "This is like a time machine." And I was like, 
wait, wait, you mean to tell me that I can, to like a, a, a certain degree of like um, certainty, speak like a person who lived thousands of years ago? Are you kidding me? That's nuts. And like that, that thing, that just absolutely blew my mind. And then I like, you know, went on a binge of trying to learn how to speak PIE um, and that sort of crack. And it's just, it's just, that, that is something that I just, I'm, I'm like, well done humans. That is awesome. Fair play. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. My only, it's the only, only problem, not problem, but the only uh, great sadness here is that we will, I don't think we'll ever be able to find like a proto world. We just can't, the fog of war is too thick and we'll mm. never be able to go back for enough to just be able to say like languages started here and this is what it could have sounded like. We just, yeah. we just can't do that. Um, and that's really sad. If, if there is such a one, if it, if it didn't kind of, I mean, I would imagine that there must be, but um, if it didn't, sort of arise independently more than in, once in several places yeah and there's also yeah. um uh, yeah, this is just completely anecdotal and uh something i've discussed with other non-linguists so take this with all the grains of salt possible but it could be an idea that when we if we were to go back far enough we may find something that is just if for want of a better word it's so alien that we'll we find it hard to think of it in terms of how we conceive languages mm. now you know so it's kind of almost meaningless to be able to go back to that sort of point um but again part of me just kind of like, wouldn't it be cool though like if i got a time machine man there's no way I'm, I'm not going back and killing hitler at least not straight away i'm going back and finding out when the first word was uttered or when the first subordinate clause was uttered that sort of stuff really appeals to me <laughs> And then we'll then we'll take care of Hitler. But first, first language. <laughs> I would mostly spend it going to going to con- concerts. Going to concerts. Yeah. What? Why? To like see see Rage Against the Machine in like nineteen ninety two. That'd be so cool. Or or like go to like iconic musical events. Oh man. I, I literally couldn't disagree with you more here because you could just be like, if it's tape, just watch the tape. That's not the same thing at all. Yes, but like, but it, but Bill, you have a time. You can go back to like the formation of Earth and watch that if you want. But instead, you're going to go back and watch Rage Cat's Machine in 1992. Like, there's so much more interesting stuff that you can literally can't consume ever if you had a time machine. Don't go for the content. Yeah, but like, it's not like we're short in time, Edgar. Oh, because we have a time machine? Yeah. Well, maybe the time machine only has a limited fuel capacity. We'll just, like, time travel to where we can get more fuel. Oh, yeah, this is yeah, that's the issue. That, yeah. that, this is like the asking the genie to wish for more wishes. <laughs> Can't be doing that to me, Bill. Um, but yeah, la- language is dope, and I wish we, we could... Um, I would love if we were able to reconstruct a proto-world. That would be so... be so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. Um, so those were all your points you said, yeah? I think so. They're, those are all of my points concern, concerning tone. Brill. Uh, so yeah, my only point to bring up was just to um, reiterate the, the idea of like the, the, the distinction of tone I'm working with and how that assumes pitch accent systems. Um, that was the only point I wanted to bring up. Because yeah, again, mm. a lot of people like, I think Swedish speakers or people who were, who were advocating on behalf of Swedish were like, they're very much against like, I'm... I don't agree with you that Swedish is a tonal language. Um, whereas I'm, you know, I'm pretty steadfast in that assertion. I think that is accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So uh, that's writer's room done. Uh, do you want to go and do some red Mars? Let's. 
so green room it's artifacts in book club corner we're going to talk about red mars by kim stanley robinson i got that correct yes. didn't I? yes um yes. so um there will be no more content after this the only thing i will say is just you can stop listening in a second now the only thing i will say is that uh obelisk gate the second book of the broken earth series that's going to be the next book for review so pick that guy up uh if you want to read it and we'll review that in in a month or two um mm. yeah so so from here on in it's exclusively red mars no more content after this spoilers galore so you've been warned stop listening at this point if you so desire no? Yes. Okay. All right. Red Marsville. Uh, do you want to give a uh, brief synopsis and give me your thoughts? Uh, Red Mars is the first book in a trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson. He's an American writer. And it charts the beginning, the first um, 40 years or so, 35, 40 years of human settlement on Mars uh the cultural and political and economic and social and kind of it even touches on kind of the spiritual uh implications and ramifications of such an endeavor that's a remarkably good uh synopsis you're very good at this yeah very good at the synopsis um so uh do you what do you think of this book do you like it i love this book you I love, love this, book. this book. Okay. Yeah, but, I've read I've read it a few times before. I, I it's it's I, I really, really enjoy it. I get a lot out of it. So can you explain why? <laughs> There's such beauty in it. Um and the like the descriptions of the the descriptions of Mars, um of the landscape and the, the people's reactions to it. I find really really powerful. Um the I find all the the relationships in it really interesting. Um and it explores it explores things in a really kind of in-depth way like there's 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 no one who you, you see things from so many different points of view with the different characters in a way that I think is is really effective. Um and everyone's kind of unreliable to to a degree in different ways um yeah no i just i i think he's i think he's a really i think he's a really great author so intellectually i get that right and that all makes sense but i found the book i enjoyed the book overall um but i found it to be a little bit dull um and a bit of a slog in parts um like Mm -hmm. it's a big book man it's thick yeah it's it's a thick book and some of it was quite yeah, some of it was quite quite boring. Um, the, the the last section of it is a bit of a slog, I find. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. And so, like intellectually, I, I I agree. And like you know, obviously the big philosophical debates, which we're going to get into about like to terraform and to not terraform, and what does that mean, and what to say about us. Like that's really interesting and stuff. But like you know, in the same way that a philosophy paper is really interesting, but I wouldn't I wouldn't read that as entertainment. You know. Um, so I I've I guess I've kind of mixed feelings about this book, um, mm-hmm. yeah, just because it was just because of the length and the the in parts the drudgery of it. I, I agree with your assessment about the descriptions of Mars are very awe inspiring and very beautiful. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and what I found it really funny at one point, uh, they're trying to, they're doing some study of the landscape of Mars, and um, they they basically go on a big uh, a big talk about glaciation. Um, they talk about like others oh, like U shaped values, but like there's no yeah. striation marks, so it wouldn't be a thing made by ice. And I was like, ah. Oh, Kim Stanley Robinson got in his time machine. And he watched an Artifexian video. Fair play, and I was like, and because I, and, and it, it it particularly hit me because um there are points when I'm making those geography style videos where I'm like, do people like will people actually use this in their fiction? Like, will this even inform anything at all? Or am I just giving a geography lesson like in school? And it actually felt really good to read Kim Stanley Robinson there and be all like, yeah, he's he's taking what we know about glaciation and applying it here. And that's kind of dope. He, he's an artifacts fan. He's an artifacts fan. And that made me very happy. <laughs> but yeah, the, yeah. And, and also the, um, the description of some of the structures they put up as well is quite awe-inspiring. Like to talk about like these, like, you know, it's the space elevator, like that's the, the mm. whole construction of that and how it was constructed and how it like uh, collapsed and things. Spoilers. Um, it was just like, it was quite <laughs> awe-inspiring. It was, it was, it was pretty cool. Yeah. No. Um the uh, another another issue I had at the start, I don't know if you clocked this, uh was that there was um he presents Mars as a real melting pot of of different cultures and things like that. Um but as it, as the story progresses, yeah. Oh, well, you know, even at the very very start because at the start isn't it um Oh, like in in the first 100 the, the, no, the different no. nationalities represented. Yeah, yeah, but remember, you know, at the very, very start where we get the, the murder scene thing. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of in a more modern Mars. Uh, it's like a flash forward, isn't it? Yeah, so it, it's, it starts in 2052, I think, and then it goes backwards about 30 years, or about 25 years. We are not going to Mars by 2052. I'll tell you that much. No. That's not no. going to happen. There's no space. In fairness, it was written in 1993, so he had a bit more of a lead in. <laughs> I, I think you should always just overestimate these things. Like, yeah. just, just make it that you go to Mars in 3,000 um you know 2052 but anyway at the very very start though we're we're we are given a populated mars and you know you have a lot of there's a big arab contingent a big swiss contingent there's a festival going on like it's this bubbling place and i i I get like that that's a really cool thing to present it's almost like a a neo new york if you will um in that just like it's this big melting pot of all different people but i found some of his descriptions of the people to be like i don't know like a little bit racist did you get that? Yeah, I, I on this reading, I was kind of thinking about stuff like that that I hadn't picked up before, um, and that's actually one of the things I have written down here. I have national stereotypes question mark written in my in my notes here. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think a lot of that is the it's the narrator's voice, not his personal voice. Um, sure. That um and it's it's interesting from the point of view of the two uh, American point of view characters that we get, um John and Frank, mm-hmm. and it's it's Frank who, who is the point of view character for the first bit, and he he is um friendly and and sympathetic to the Arabs, but he wants to use them as a tool. They're a kind of a means to an end for him, um and whereas John is more overtly. Uh, bigoted mm. um, even though he's kind of nominally the more sort of heroic character or the, the more 
the more idealist kind of character. Uh, but that's just because he's kind of an American chauvinist and because he's mm-hmm. he's got this anti he's got this whole anti religion thing in him anyway. Um, so the, the the comparisons of the two of the two sort of types of bigotry that we we saw there were interesting. Um, based based on his other work, based on Kim Stanley Robinson's other work. Um, and I know you can't be expected to know that just from reading this book. I would expect that uh, that is largely um, to do with kind of un- unreliable narration. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not it's not for me to say, I suppose. But that that would be that would be my my suspicion and my hope. Yeah, it did stick out though. It stuck out like yeah. a, a sort of like imagine if you were to read like the diaries of uh, I don't know a Victorian gentleman on a gap year. Go, going through the empire you'd expect the sort of stereotypes he might write of the people he encounters to yeah. to read a little bit like this and I, like i take your point that it makes sense but it's just kind of it's quite jarring to uh yeah to to uh to hear particularly when and oh, there's also like the the kind of the neurotic dramatic russian one um and then the the existentialist frenchman and they, they even point out at, near the start about like trying not to to mysticize Hiroko and, and turn her into sort of an oriental dragon lady. And then the narrative kind of does that anyway. Oh, kind of. It hard does that. Yeah, it, it does that. <laughs> uh, yeah, and she becomes like, you know, a mystic shaman-esque character um, throughout it. Um, yeah, so that was kind of a, I don't know, it, was just, it, it, it stuck out to me. It stuck out to me. Um mm-hmm. So that was one point, uh, and the the other, the only other point I have on it, like I think what I think is like a big talking point that maybe we can get into, um, is I, I felt like the central, like question of this book was the terraforming issue, mm-hmm. and should is it okay for humans to terraform another planet? Um, what are your thoughts on this? Like, do you care? What camp do you fall into? Would you be, if we were to go to Mars tomorrow and this was a political issue that was raised, where do you think you'd fall on the spectrum of terraform or not? I care very much. Oh. Um, and I am totally paralyzed by the question. What's that? As in, like, you just can't answer one way or the other? Yeah. That, that that's probably the best stance to have I, so I used to be I used to be hard against it so I used to be like we're wrecking nature yeah and let nature be um but then there is a there's a, a line in this book I can't quote it but it was something to the effect of you know um when you invoke imagery of ruining something that necessarily means ruining to an observer right and if we're the only conscious observers of the place, we cannot ruin it for anyone but ourselves. So yeah. kind of who cares? And then I'm kind of, and I was kind of like, that actually makes a lot of sense. And I was like, you know, if we took Phallus Marinaris there on Mars and instead of tur- and took it from a desert and turned it into a lush, you know, green valley, does that make it any less beautiful? And, and surely that would increase its beauty because the observers can go to observe it now um, and treasure it and, and keep it, etc. Whereas I think if you keep it in the state of a barren rock, you might run the risk that people are more likely to treat it as like a an uh, unbeautiful thing that we can just, you know, blow up or whatever for extract for minerals. But if we turn it into this beautiful place, 
people may be less likely to do that. So I find myself... I don't think a place being beautiful makes it less likely to be exploited, dude. Well, no, that's fair. That's fair. Um, <laughs> but They are hardcore dynamiting the entirety of uh, right. mountains all over Appalachia just to get the stuff inside and then rebuilding the mountain. Yeah, like. oh, and then, yeah, like destroying the rainforest, etc. Um, yeah, but I sp- maybe I suppose, uh, I'll frame it a different way, if, if a huge amount of capital was put into turning Valis Marinaris into a lush green paradise... Uh, maybe investors might be a little bit less keen to destroy it because they've sunk an investment into it. Whereas if it's just a barren rock and the only investment is the travel time to get out there, uh, people might be more likely to like, we'll just, we'll just blow the crap out of it. Um, and, that, mm. and that's a slightly different case than Earth because no capital was sank into making Appalachia. Do you know, like that just exists yeah. there. So everyone's kind of like, I didn't pay for it, blow the hell out of it. Whereas this would be a constructed thing where capital has been sunk into. Yeah, but I mean, that, that's that's applying a, and I, I know you're consciously doing this, but that's applying a judgment of that, um, a a lush valley is is more beautiful and more worthy than rocks. Yeah, um, yeah, but I, I, you're right. I am doing it constantly, but also the idea, the lush value is kind of a, a secondary um, effect of there being an atmosphere to sustain it, so that humans can be there to observe it at will. Um, you know, outside of spacesuits and vehicles and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I found myself swinging the other way and being like almost like a, a terraform extremist, just to be like, yeah, first thing we should do is terraform the bejesus out of it mm. um, to make it more happy for us so that we can appreciate it better because we're the only ones that will appreciate it because so far there's no other life. And then also the other point was, was being that the idea of treating treating Mars or any planet as kind of unique and a thing to be protected, I don't know, in a sort of cold, clinical way of thinking about it, you you might say to yourself, well, that's kind of a bit folly because there's there's probably a gajillion Marses all over the galaxy um, there. So what's the problem with terraforming this one instance of a rocky or a sandy, rocky planet, do you know? Well, in that case, because it's going to be tens of thousands of years before we would be able to get to any of the other ones so yeah i mean but i mean more like uh sorry if we if we take it that um you know beauty's in the eye of the beholder you need an observer um to to witness these things um if there are if there is other sentient life out there they will likely have their own mars somewhere like a rocky sandy planet that's probably going to be extremely common so us terraforming our one doesn't take that doesn't take that much away from from the universe from the universe and other sentient races aren't going to knock on our door one day and be like you destroyed the only instance of rocky sandy planet you monsters they'd be like yeah whatever man we've like there's there's 50 of those like in our in our little neighborhood it's grand like whatever um part of me is thinking that that also kind of makes sort of sense so I've, I've become more of a terraforming extremist after reading this book Hmm. Hmm. You're still on the fence. You still don't know which way to go. Do you do yeah. you, do you lean any particular way? I lean both ways, depending both on ways. the way I think about it. 
Mm. I can see I can see per- persuasive arguments on both sides, which I think are and and both both are fairly outlined. I think in yes in the novel. I mean, ultimately, uh, Sachs kind of wins the argument, um, but it's I don't think it's clear that he is necessarily in the right, um, and it is it is a continuing uh, debate over the over the rest of the series. Like, it doesn't just end that, like, at the end of Red Mars, oh, well, we're going to terraform. It, it is an ongoing discussion for the for the entire series. But I'm assuming, given the titles of the books, they continued terraforming. Uh, sure. But <laughs> the, the, the degree to which and, and what can be preserved and various other things become, become, uh, elaborated upon and the the reds I, I don't know if they really use the 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 factions that much in red mars so the reds are the anti-terraformers yeah. and the greens are the pro-terraformers yeah. um, and that becomes like much much uh more important as the series continues um and and the way their things evolve and, and change over the course of the series um is important um that terminology i think is great because yeah the, the greens you know, we associate green with environmentalism uh, <laughs> and the process of terrible forming like naturally means polluting this yeah. atmosphere. And but yeah. yet they call themselves the greens for obviously. It's, it's kind of anti, it's anti uh, environmentalism for the existing environment that is there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's just a real fun little thing there. Um, what about, what about, do you have any thoughts on like non-terraforming? So no terraforming, but... Uh, having humans be on Mars because like any human interaction with Mars is going to to a degree alter Mars right yeah um so do you feel strongly about the idea of like okay we won't terraform but we're going to put up a whole bunch of like domes everywhere and space habitats and that sort of crack like do you see that as being a different type of thing or a terraforming light or how do you feel about that I would have fewer qualms about it. Yeah, I'd have fewer reservations about it. So in that, but uh, in that, you'd be okay with it occurring. Yeah. Okay. Okay. More, uh, more okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, you, you can't, you can't ever not impact a place. Um, and you know, we've we've left footprints on the moon, which will never be erased, except by further human action. Um, but you know that that doesn't bother me. Would your paralysis with the terraform be swayed in any way with like a, if there's a human cost to it in that, like, you know, as is often proposed, and I think it's proposed in Red Mars that the the earth is basically uh, going down the tubes, mm-hmm. um, massively overpopulated and polluted. And oh boy. <laughs> everything's awful. Like if there's a pressing need to like, to basically have a bunch of like earth refugees, and let's say that, you know, it's somehow more cost effective that, and more, no, let's say it's just more cost effective to terraform as opposed to bringing over a whole bunch of parts to build tons of space habitats or whatever. Um, yeah. Would you feel more inclined to go like, well, okay, we have an inanimate object here that we can destroy or we can... Oh, yeah, yeah. So so in that case, you'd be more terraform, let's get people safe. Yeah, I mean, the the continued existence of life like if it is if it is a a a binary choice between the the extinction of humanity and terraforming mars if somehow that was presented strictly as a binary choice yeah terraform absolutely 
do you still sorry it's an awful lot of me trying to figure out where you stand on this i'm sorry if this is really boring to people and you bill i'm sorry if you find it's boring um okay do you feel the same way for any given planet or is there something about mars because in red mars he talks a lot about how mars has captivated humans since you know time immemorial um would you care as much about mercury or venus or anything like that or the moon logically yes i mean i do just kind of dig mars i think mars is cool um largely from reading this to be honest from 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 reading this when i was a teenager hmm. um uh but like i used to be able to like name all of the the features of mars on a map no way yeah yeah so like i when when i i've kind of forgotten it now but i've like i've a pretty good idea like i know where olympus mons is if i'm hmm. looking at a map and i i, I know that that's on that's on Elysium, and I know like where the the Valles Marineris is in relation to that, and I know where the Hellas is. Mm. But do you yeah. know where Underhill is? Uh, <laughs> Underhill is it's on Elysium, isn't it? I have no idea. I, there was no map yeah, in the sure audiobook, so I have, I have no idea. Um, yeah, uh, I I found the names. Let me the, check. I found the names on the map to be uh, kind of I don't know, like um, quirky. Like uh, there was a place called Nicosia. And I was kind of like, Nicosia? That's a bit mad. Um, Why? Well, just because, I don't know, because again, okay, logically, I think what would actually happen is that we would get an awful lot of um, corporations uh, in the naming conventions of these places. Like, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if this were to occur IRL, that we'd get like new McDonald's. Like, I'm not even joking. Like, I guarantee you some corporation is going to sponsor uh, a, a a town to spring up on Mars and they will uh, be adamant that their name be incorporated into that for advertising. I guarantee you that's what happens. But also Nicosia, like, I don't see Nic- like Cyprus as being, unless there's a different Nicosia I'm unaware of, but I don't see Cyprus as being kind of a powerhouse on the world stage such that it would get its own kind of place on, on Mars. Because- I think it was just that it was that was largely built by... Um, by Cypriots. Well, I, I don't think it, it said Cypriots, but it was it was that it was largely built by by Muslims, and that's what? like a you know kind of in the Muslim part of the world. Is it Nicosia? Like, it... well, it's Nicosia is divided between um, Cyprus and uh, Turkish Cyprus, yes. which is like at the kind of unrecognized northern half of the island. Yeah, that I suppose. I suppose, but God, that seems like a. I just, I, it seems like a stretch. Like I, I would have expected, I don't know, I would have expected New Riyadh or, uh, I don't, well, I, they, they, they did have Cairo. Cairo, I think would be more kind of, but there, there is one, there is a Cairo. But that's what I'm saying. I think that's more kind of like, yeah. uh, I don't know, a name that I would be more inclined to choose, but like Nicosia, it'd be the equivalent of like, if I were given the choice to, you must name a place on Mars after somewhere in Ireland. Like I, I would go, I'd probably name it New Dublin just because most Irish people do live in that city. It'd be a bit weird if I was just like, I know, I picked some random place on the other, and just was like, Kilty Clawher. And everyone's like, <laughs> what the hell is Kilty Clawher, you know? <laughs> it's just, I don't know. New Claire Galway. <laughs> exactly. It's kind of like that. Like that's, that, I'm not saying that Nicosia is... New Listoon Varna. <laughs> I'd go for that, actually. I'd go for New Listoon Varna. That'd be fun. Uh, I'm not saying that Nicosia is a place of little consequence, but given the current geopolitical situation of the world, um, there are more. I, I would I would argue there are more prominent places in 
the Muslim world that might have gotten a shout out uh, before Nicosia. Uh, I love you, Cyprus. We we actually have we bought a small house in Cyprus. Our family did. Oh, did you? So we've we've connections to Cyprus a little bit. So I love you, Cyprus, and I, I was been, I've been there as a child, and it's a great place. I, I I want to point out I actually misspoke there. I think I said uh, Underhill was on Elysium. It's on Tharsis. I I I flipped the two around with my head. Shame. Um, yeah, I know. Shame. As I said, I have forgotten most of this stuff, but I used to be able to do it re- really reliably. So the uh, so yeah so you're. Oh yeah, so your feelings hold for all the planets, even though there's a special place in your heart for Mars. Yeah. Okay, so if we terraform the moon, that is the same calculus for you. You're like, we shouldn't, I'm paralyzed to this decision. Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, I mean, the moon is kind, it's kind of ours already, but maybe for Venus it would be different. I don't know. Mm. How would you feel, okay, more hypotheticals here. How would you feel if we found that there was life i don't know if we've found that there's life on mars we probably haven't have we no we we have not we have not okay um if we found that there was some sort of bacterial life on mars does that change your calculus absolutely absolutely so even though that that life is like a bajillion years away from perhaps even remotely becoming some way sentient um or you know or becoming like megaflora megafauna you're still like nope this is the starting point of life we are not allowed here. Done. I wouldn't say I wouldn't consider it that it was the starting point of life. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't put a like a Lamarckian uh, ranking on it. But no, it's that's that has right to existence. And so it's any life has right to existence there. Yeah. Be it the smallest microbe, or if we found a small deer with antlers prancing around Venus. It yeah. all has right to. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That absolutely. Makes, that makes sense. That makes sense. I I would imagine. I'm with you on that, but I'd imagine a lot of people, particularly if you were to say like, well, hang on, the earth's dying here before us. We're all, you know, baking in climate change and you're telling us that we can't move to Mars because of some microbes. Um, I think that would be a very hard sell for people, but I'm with you. I think in practicality that we probably wouldn't uphold that, but in spirit, I, I'm, I'm fully with you on that, like that any life at all should be maintained. Like, again, if it's if it's a... Uh... If it's a t- choice between total human extinction, yeah, it, w- it will be a harder choice for me to make. But like, I don't know. But that, but those bacteria, they may one day become Martians. You know? Well, they already are. Well, I mean, but like, like thinking Martians. I don't think that matters. I know that's right. That's mad. I don't think many people would have that opinion. I think a lot of people would make a cut off there, like the difference between a you know a single celled organism and a a sentient being they'd be like these are two very different things like, i get they're alive but they're two very different things we treat them very differently um yeah i mean i i, I we i think we would treat them very differently um but still like the it, it still has a fundamental the fact of it of its existence is fundamental would you rather uh sorry again i'm probably, this is literally my last question would you rather we didn't touch uh, any natural body in the solar system and just constructed uh, artificial structures in space. So uh, we solve our Earth is dying problem by building a giant ass. T- uh, what's that movie? El- Elysium. Elysium. Mm-hmm. Um, like a, a, a giant ring like that somewhere in space where we and we just make a call as human uh, as as the human race to be like we do not touch anything natural here. We've screwed up natural objects. We're not doing that again. We're just going to float around in space. In our I mean, we're only going to be able to do that by. Um, mining 
like asteroids. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that that's fair. I guess maybe we'll just rank the asteroids being lower on the priority list of uh, preservation. <laughs> Poor old series, it was just blown to schmitterines. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, so those are those are basically my takes, uh, my my thoughts on the book. I found it I found it interesting intellectually, a bit dull, and it, it's a little bit long. I don't think it needed to be that long, particularly for a first book. Um, mm. The philosophical debate is uh, it's very fun, uh, and he really does do a good job of presenting all sides of these philosophical arguments and you as a reader find yourself going oh, i kind of agree with john here oh, i kind of agree with frank oh i i, I agree with Hiroko, and you're, you're finding yourself torn which i think is uh really good and also his research on march is great like he just it, it, he the way he presents mars is just it feels so real which is amazing mm. um so those are my thoughts i'd give it a solid uh seven eight out of ten okay uh, what about you? What are your uh, closing remarks, summaries there, or any additional points? Um, no, I have said everything I wish to say. Hmm. Okay, and you, you, your thumbs up for the book. Yes, thumbs up for the book. Cool. All right. Uh, so, uh, you're and you're okay with Obliskate next, whenever that might happen. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, cool. All right. Um, yeah, I think that's the show. I think it is. Oh, look at us in under two hours. Woo! Whoop, whoop, whoop. All right. Um, so thank you so much for listening, folks. Thanks, chat, for being there. Hello, chat. Um, thanks a million for uh, supporting us on Patreon, folks, as well. Uh, links are in the show notes for all of these things. Um, we will uh, see you next month. We certainly will. Until next time. Edgar, Edgar out. out. Thank you.